This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, as America remembers the September 11th attacks, presidents past and present urge a divided America to unite. And President Biden tries to force the hesitant to get their vaccine. America closed one chapter in its fight against terrorism yesterday, marking two decades since the attacks that claimed nearly 3,000 lives. And for the first time in 20 years, there are no U.S. troops in Afghanistan. But the Taliban is back in control, just as they were when they harbored Osama bin Laden there 20 years ago. Can Al-Qaeda come back? Yeah, but guess what? It's already back other places. What's the strategy? Now, U.S. intelligence officials are warning that America's chaotic withdrawal from that war is inspiring terrorist groups abroad. And as the president who first launched the war on terror warned, the hate espoused by extremists at home is now eerily similar. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. In their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit. We'll hear from a key Republican voice on foreign policy, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll discuss the security threats facing America now with former acting CIA director Michael Morell. Then, as COVID's ferocious Delta variant continues to spread, President Biden issues a sweeping vaccine mandate that may rest on shaky legal ground. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, and your refusal has cost all of us. One group that clearly needs protection? Children too young to be vaccinated who are being hospitalized with COVID in record numbers as the school year gets into full swing. We'll talk with the top pediatrician at Texas Children's Hospital, Dr. James Versalovic, and we'll check in with Alberto Carballo, the superintendent of schools in Florida's Miami-Dade County, where at least 13 school employees have passed away from coronavirus in just the last month. And we'll get the latest on a timeline for children's COVID vaccines from former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Yesterday, Americans marked a somber milestone. 20 years since the September 11th attack, an event that upended American life and launched the war on terror. We'll have more on national security later in the broadcast. But this morning, Americans are waking up to another threat. The Delta variant continues its unrelenting spread. President Biden now faces a slowing economy and his frustration with the 80 million Americans who remain unvaccinated is clear. He's now requiring federal workers to take the vaccine and mandating some private businesses to do so, too, or submit to weekly testing. But that order could soon face legal challenges. CBS senior national correspondent Mark Strassman is in Atlanta with the latest on COVID's impact. COVID's back-to-school lesson, how vulnerable kids are, making up more than one in four new COVID cases. How do other parents, how are they okay with that? How are they just okay with that over a, I mean, a mask? For the sickest COVID kids, hospitalization rates spiked almost tenfold since late June. Alarm in Los Angeles. America's second largest school district just mandated vaccinations for eligible students. That's why there isn't measles and mumps and rubella in our schools, because we vaccinate and we require it. These nine states have banned or restricted school masking mandates, including Florida. 
On Friday, a judge upheld the governor's ban. Let the parents make the decision that's best for their kids. If you want the mask, do it. If you don't, don't. That's fine. But Florida's pandemic politics has consequences. In Miami, Abe Coleman, an elementary school math teacher for three decades, died of COVID. He was just a great co-worker to many people and had stayed at the school like a monument. Coleman became one of 13 Miami-Dade teachers and staff to die of the virus already this school year, all of them unvaccinated. COVID also killed more than 2,400 Floridians last week, another state record. Four were children under 16. With the unvaccinated, many college campuses have gone from pleading to punishing. Ohio State will deny them housing and in-person classes next spring. At Quinnipiac University, fines of up to $200 a week. More than 700 colleges and universities have mandated vaccines. I think it's a massive overstep of their authority. But this ICU in Boise, Idaho, largely reflects COVID America today. Every COVID patient is unvaccinated. And they all ask, well, what could I have done? Will the vaccine save them now? No. Pfizer's vaccine for kids between the ages of 5 and 11 reportedly could get FDA approval by the end of next month. Communities like Metro Atlanta could use the help. Roughly 25,000 kids have tested positive in the first six weeks of school. Mark Margaret. Sussman, thank you very much. Well, we want to go now to former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who sits on the board of Pfizer. He's got a new book coming out, too, next week, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Scott, it is great to see you again. Good to see you. <laughs> Look, states can mandate vaccines. Federal government has never done something like this before uh, outside of the U.S. military. The Republican governor of Arkansas is on TV today saying this is going to backfire. He's trying to convince his constituents to take the vaccine. And because the federal government's telling them to, he says it's going to be even harder. Practically speaking, does this mandate make sense? I think the um, downside of this mandate in terms of hardening positions and taking something that was subtly political and making it overtly political could outweigh any of the benefits that we hope to achieve. If you look at where we are right now, right now, 75 percent of adults over the age of 18 have had at least one dose of the vaccine. Most of them will complete the series. That's a very high number of people vaccinated owing to the good work of the Biden administration. We're not going to get above 90 percent. We don't even really reach 90 percent with childhood immunizations, which are mandated. So we're going to get somewhere between 80 and 90 percent. I would state that we would have gotten to 80 percent just on our current trajectory in short order. Perhaps with a mandate on small businesses, eventually you get to something akin to 85 percent. But it's going to be slow because this is going to get litigated. It takes OSHA time to implement regulations. You'll have to put in place guidance, give businesses a grace period and then figure out what the enforcement mechanism is going to be. And in the near term, a lot of businesses that might have mandated vaccines are now going to sit on their hands and say, I'm going to wait for OSHA to tell me just how to do it right. and give me more political cover. So in the near term, you could actually discourage some vaccination. Right. OSHA, that's going to come from the Labor Department, and they haven't filed that yet. That's what right. you're referring to. But the president, what he said was mandating a vaccine for businesses. And if employees at those businesses don't take it, the alternative is to get weekly testing. Do we have the testing capacity in the country to do that right now? We would have the testing capacity to do it, but it puts a big burden on businesses to have to operationalize that and, and determine what they're going to do with the results. So I think a lot of businesses are going to opt to try to force workers to get vaccinated if, in fact, this ever goes into effect. But again, well, we're looking were. at a very long timeline here. Excuse me? Many already were, right? Many, many were, exactly. Many businesses are. And I think that the federal government's action to require federal employees to get vaccinated, which is probably well within their purview to do that in a function of federal readiness, that gives plenty of political cover for more businesses, more private sector businesses to start to implement the, their own mandates. So I don't think we had to reach down to mm -hmm. the level of small businesses with 100 or more employees and put a federal requirement on them. I don't think the federal government should be dictating this. I also don't think governors should be preventing small businesses from making these determinations on their own. We should leave these decisions to communities, local communities and businesses to make assessments on what 
what their risk is, what their settings are, how much precautions they can put in, whether yeah. vaccine requirements are an absolute necessary, necessary to, to protect people in those settings. Well, kids still can't get a vaccine if they're between the ages of 5 and 11. When will it be available to them? Well, I'm more familiar with the process for Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of. Pfizer has said that they're going to have data before the end of September. They could be ready to file within days of having that data. So they'll file very quickly with the FDA. FDA has said it's going to be a matter of weeks, not months, in terms of their evaluation of that clinical data to make a determination whether they're going to authorize vaccines for kids age 5 to 11. I interpret that to mean perhaps four weeks, maybe six weeks. But I think in a best-case scenario, given that timeline that I've just laid out, you could potentially have a vaccine available to children age 5 to 11 by Halloween. If everything goes well, if the Pfizer data package is in order, and FDA ultimately makes a positive determination. I have confidence in Pfizer in terms of the data that they've collected, but this is really up to the, Fe the Food and Drug Administration to make an objective determination. Well, then it's up to parents whether they want to use a vaccine under emergency use for their children. If you're a parent, what do you ask your pediatrician and are there options out there? Yeah, I think parents should look at this as a decision where there is some latitude in terms of what you do with your child. And you really should consult your pediatrician and have a conversation. Parents have understandable concerns about putting any new product, new medical product in a child. It's not just this vaccine. It's any vaccine or any therapeutic. And I understand those concerns. Um, this isn't a binary decision. It's not a choice of do I vaccinate my child or not. There's different ways to approach vaccination. You could go with one dose for now. You could potentially wait for the lower dose vaccine to be available, and some pediatricians may make that judgment. If your child's already had COVID, one dose may be sufficient. You could space the doses out more. So there's a lot of discretion that pediatricians can exercise, making largely off-label judgments, but exercising discretion within the context of what an individual child's needs are, their risk is, and what the parent's concerns are. So I would urge every parent to have a conversation with their pediatrician. Pediatricians are very good at counseling through these decisions, and and I think that they could provide good, objective advice to parents. Well, what about the parents themselves? Uh, we've seen this Israeli data that shows the vaccine may have some waning impact after six months. When is the FDA going to fully approve boosters? Um, and if Pfizer's first out of the gate, as has been reported, when will we see Johnson & Johnson and Moderna follow? Well, there's a meeting this Friday of the FDA's advisory committee to discuss this very issue. Um, the agency could be in a position to act very quickly, depending on what the outcome of that meeting is. If there is a recommendation from the FDA's external advisors to authorize boosters or license boosters, um, the agency could act very quickly. And in ACIP, the advisory committee to the CDC would meet and make a recommendation about what population should receive boosters. The conventional wisdom is, is that if boosters are approved, it's probably going to be for people who are more at risk from COVID right now. They've already recommended it for those who are immunocompromised, moderately or severely immunocompromised. I think the next tranche would probably be older individuals, particularly individuals who live in congregate settings like nursing homes. And that's may, that may be what we see next. Pfizer has filed their application with the FDA. I think J&J is going to be in a position also to file a package with the FDA soon as mm -hmm. well. They have very good data also looking at boosters. They've showed a good response. And I think that vaccine also could be in a position to get authorized by FDA in short order. Uh, also, very quickly, uh, governors issue mandates for kids to get vaccines. Uh, anyone sending their kid in the classroom has to do that. Do you expect COVID to be any different? In time, no. I think you're going to see more local school districts and governors make those recommendations. Eventually, ASIP's going to make a recommendation about whether this should be included in the childhood immunization schedule. My guess is they're waiting for more of the vaccines to be fully licensed to make that kind of a recommendation. But I would expect this eventually to be required as part of the childhood immunization schedule. Well, Dr. Gottlieb, always good to talk to you. And Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Tomorrow, lawmakers will get their chance for the first time to question the Biden administration on that chaotic military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Meanwhile, the Taliban is solidifying control in Kabul, raising their flag over the Afghan presidential palace. Our Charlie Daggett is in neighboring Pakistan. Charlie, uh, U.S. intelligence is already acknowledging uh, that the victory is inspiring jihadist propaganda. What are you hearing about how the chaos of this withdrawal will impact the U.S.? Well, Margaret, we have to make clear right away, the Taliban are claiming victory. And of course, that's going to embolden jihadists in this region. It already has. The priority is in Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and here in Pakistan. We have to remember that almost everybody that we've spoken to here and in Afghanistan, including the outgoing Afghan government, if you want to call them that, said Al-Qaeda is intrinsically linked with the Taliban. In terms of how Afghanistan is now, they are in trouble. I mean, there is a deep humanitarian crisis going on now. So they need an outreach. They need legitimacy from the United States and the international community. But if they don't get it, uh, there are others that are willing to fill that void. I'm talking about players like uh, Russia and China, who, if the Taliban don't play by the rules and an international standard, they're there to move in. The CIA chief was in Pakistan this week, and he has acknowledged the U.S. has lost capabilities without a footprint in Afghanistan. Does that mean we are more reliant on Pakistan now? Well, right after William Burns came on Wednesday, a couple days later, just uh, on Saturday, uh, the intelligence chiefs of Russia, China, Iran, and other local countries here met with the intelligence leaders here as well. So there is a sense that the United States is being sidelined. Uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan said, you have to think twice if the United States thinks they're going to be able to apply a base here, reestablish a base here. So the U.S. may need, they do need, to have some sort of footprint here. But for the time being, they're being pushed out by other players. Charlie Daggett in Islamabad. Thank you. We go now to Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Intelligence officials are predicting that al-Qaeda could reconstitute in as little as 12 months. Uh, have you heard a strategy from the administration yet? Tomorrow you'll be able to put questions like that to the Secretary of State. Yeah, no, I haven't. And, uh, you know, all you keep hearing is this nebulous over the horizon capability. And I think what's important is to understand what over the horizon capability is. It basically says, if we see a target of opportunity, we have the ability to come forward and strike it. You know, great, we can do some of that in, in areas that, you know, we hear about a, a one-off drone strike. But keep in mind, when we defeated ISIS, for instance, in Syria and Iraq, and obviously that's ongoing, we had to embed people with the local forces to be able to get the intel necessary for those strikes. So I've heard nothing but that nebulous over the, you know, over the horizon strike capability. And secondarily, the fact that you know, your prior guest was talking about having to rely on, in essence, the Russians or, or China's in there now and Pakistan's playing such a big role. Yeah. That is what happens when you leave a position that we had there in Afghanistan. Well, I'm not going to litigate the leave or stay. It's done, right? And the American public overwhelmingly seems to support the concept. But on the practicalities on the national security front, the president said yesterday to reporters when he was asked about the chaotic withdrawal, it's hard to explain to anybody how else you could do it. He said if you pulled up a plane in, in another country, for example, you would also, quote, have people hanging in the wheel well. Come on. Was this as unavoidable as he is suggesting? 
You know, I, I don't think it is. I mean, look, it's I, I get armchair quarterbacking, and it's easy for some people to come up and say that, you know, the prior president would have done it perfectly or, you know, not, whatever. But I think there are so many people that know military strategy and policy that say, look, even if we made the decision that we're leaving, and, and that's an unnegotiable decision, there were a couple of key points. We always talk about the air base in Bagram. We could have defended that until every American was out and every Afghan civ was out. Um, secondarily, let's say that we still, you know, shut down that air base and we were down to that last week prior to the complete collapse of the Afghan government. That's when those 6,000 Marines and, and other and, and soldiers that rushed into the Kabul right. airport actually could have pushed out and defended Kabul proper, the city, because the Taliban at that point had no interest in coming into the city yet. And right. we could have had the evacuation on our timetable as quickly as we could have. Well, on that evacuation, it was the ambassador in Kabul who issued the evacuation order on August the 12th. Kabul fell three days later. Is the Secretary of State going to take the blame for that? Do you hold him responsible for that? And, and was the timeline here a real factor? I, you know, look, I think there's a lot of people that bear blame in the Secretary of State as one of these. And I, I think it would be nice, and keep in mind, even under the prior president, I would say this exact thing, for some people to just take responsibility. That's what the American people want, is somebody to stand up and say, look, this is on me. We, we know, obviously, that there's detailed planning that's not always on. But in the case of, of the Secretary of State, when we began to see the collapse of the Afghan military, which actually started with the threats that the Taliban were doing on these night letters against Afghan leaders and Afghan military leaders saying, the U.S. is leaving, we're going to kill your family unless you give up your arms. When we began to see that fall apart, that's when the order should have been given to basically enter a defensive posture, get everybody out we can, and not have to wait to three days prior. Because a lot of us were watching this yeah. happen, we were talking about it, and uh, and it's like wasn't a surprise to, to many of us. I want to ask you about domestic extremism, because you're one of the two Republicans investigating uh, the attack on the Capitol from January 6th. Um, there are at least two extremist groups who are expected this coming Saturday to attend a rally in defense of those uh, who were arrested. Um, have you been briefed on the security measures to protect the Capitol? Uh, are, are you confident uh, we haven't been briefed yet. We know that the fence is coming back up. We expect to be briefed this week. I, yes, I'm confident. I feel confident in our, our, you know, our law enforcement. But I think it's an important point here. Everybody has a right, obviously, to protest. Nobody would argue that. Uh, but George W. Bush said an amazing thing in his speech yesterday when he said he talked about al-Qaeda al al and domestic terrorists. And he said they may be culturally very different, but they're children of the same foul spirit. And, uh, and they seek to basically divide people that are different than them. This is why it's important that we as Republicans, frankly, and as Americans stand up and say, we shouldn't be at this point where we are truly worried for the seat of government every few months when there's a protest. So I hope it goes off well. I, I have a lot of faith in our law enforcement, um, and hopefully we'll find out more this week. Okay, so tomorrow, when, when will we hear more about the security measures? I You're not sure yet? I would love to hear more tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I would love to hear more tomorrow. I would love to have heard it last week. I hope it's soon, though. We'll be watching that. Uh, I want to go to vaccines. This is also a national security threat, the health of the American public. Um, the president issued this sweeping vaccine mandate because he's frustrated 80 million Americans haven't gotten that shot in the arm yet. Uh, and, and COVID is spiking again. He said he's doing this because Republican governors have been cavalier with their constituents, particularly kids. Doesn't he have a point? Oh, I do. I think he has a point. I Look, I, I don't know if all of his mandates will hold up in court. There's constitutional questions on some of it. I'll leave that to lawyers because I really don't know. But um, I think it's going to save lives. And, and the failure here comes in leaders that have basically used vaccine status as some tattoo of what political tribe you belong to. Um, I mean, we all hear stories of people that are in, you know, very red areas that are embarrassed to say they're vaccinated. That is insane and silly. And that is a problem with leaders, particularly Republican leaders, that don't stand up and give cover to people and say, look, this is not what Republicanism or conservatism should be. And you right. see these governors that do, you know, Mike DeWine in Ohio, and they just get pushed aside by some of those that are out to simply manipulate our base, raise money off of them. 
and not care about their life, only care about what it means for their votes and their bottom line as politicians. It's actually pretty sad. The RNC itself, the Republican National Committee, has said that they want to file, but that's, you know, rhetoric because nothing's actually been instituted yet by the administration. Um, is that who you're referring to when you say raising money off this? Well, it's, it, it's everything. I mean, it's them. It's, it's uh, when you look at really any Republican you know, not any, there's a lot that are not doing this, but there are some, you know, Republican members of Congress and stuff putting out fundraising okay. after fundraising email about first it's going to be a vaccine mandate. Next thing, the Gestapo right. is going to show up at your door and take your Bible away. Like that's right. not going to happen. And that's playing on people's fear. Congressman, thank you for your time today. And we will be back in a moment with a lot more Face the Nation. So stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Late last night, the FBI released a newly declassified document related to the investigation of the 9-11 terror attacks, outlining contacts that hijackers had with Saudi associates here in the U.S. It did not include any evidence that the Saudi government was complicit. Holly Williams is in Riyadh with a look at how that country is fighting against extremism. At Al-Hayyar prison, Saudi Arabia claims it's reforming convicted terrorists with music, sports. This is your coffee shop. Yep, exactly. And even a coffee shop the prisoners run themselves. Our guide was an inmate, Yasser Essam Hamdi, born a U.S. citizen to Saudi parents in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was there for five years and it was very nice. It was a very nice experience. Bizarrely, many inmates wore business suits during our visit and others filmed us, they said, for the prison's TV station. Saudi officials accompanied us at all times and denied allegations of torture at the facility. After growing up mainly in Saudi Arabia, Hamdi told us he travelled to Afghanistan to train with the Taliban just before the 9-11 attacks. I watch action movies a lot and I wanted like to have, uh, I want to try, I want to try doing uh, stuff like that. He was captured, held in Guantanamo Bay and then U.S. military prisons before agreeing to give up his American citizenship and returning to Saudi Arabia a free man. He was later arrested by Saudi authorities, though he was vague about why. I don't want to speak about it a lot, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, but uh, talking and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, I came back to prison. But Hamdi and several other prisoners were happy to describe their upbringing in an ultra-conservative, closed-off kingdom exposed to religious fundamentalism. If you went looking for extremism, yeah. if you went looking for fundamentalism... Exactly. You can find them. You can find them, you can learn from them, and they will misguide you. The same factors helped radicalize the 15 September 11th hijackers who were Saudi citizens, according to some. And Saudi Arabia has been criticized for being slow to fix the problem. Now Saudi Arabia says it's reforming. Extremist preaching's been banned. Women have greater freedom than ever before, including finally the right to drive. And school textbooks that once justified violence against non-Muslims have been rewritten. As Saudi Arabia tries to rehabilitate its image and stamped out extremism, Yasser Essam Hamdi told us he's also been successfully reformed. All people do mistakes. I did a mistake. I was an extremist, extremist once, but now I am not. The Saudi government has always denied any involvement in the 9-11 attacks. 
This country has won praise for its efforts to combat terrorism, but is still widely criticised over its human rights record. Margaret. Holly, thank you. For more analysis on the threats facing the country, we turn to Michael Morell. He's a former acting director of the CIA and a CBS News contributor. Great to have you here. Great to be here, Margaret. Good to have you back. <laughs> thank you. Um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda, issued a video on the 20th anniversary of the attacks. The UN said in July he's living in Afghanistan. Is he? We think so, um, which means that the Taliban is harboring Zawahiri today. Taliban is harboring al-Qaeda today. Um, and I think that's a very important point. So is that just a complete false premise then to say that pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, we can still keep the threat from al-Qaeda at bay? We have a lot of work to do um, in order to do that, right? Um, we have to figure out how we're going to collect intelligence, two types of intelligence, how we're going to make sure that al-Qaeda is not rebuilding its capabilities and is planning on attacking us again. And then we have to, if we do that, then we have to collect the kind of intelligence that gives you the precision you need to conduct strikes, right? Drones need to be told exactly where on the earth to go. What tells you that is precision intelligence. So a lot of work for the intelligence community to do here going forward. And we've seen some of that if you follow headlines, the CIA director in Pakistan uh, this week. He's already said under oath, Bill Burns, that you will have fewer intelligence tools if you pull out U.S. troops. So what exactly do we need? And isn't building up in the region the opposite of what the president intended to do, which was look at Asia and threats elsewhere? Um, so we have China, right? China is a, a big problem. It's the big strategic threat facing the United States. We gotta, we we have to, we have to pivot to that. But we also have to keep our eye on terrorism. Um, and there's terrorists in a lot of different places in the world. The president is right about that. But I think the place where we are most at risk from over the long term, and the intelligence community is saying 12 months, so the long term is kind of short here, is Afghanistan, right? So Al Qaeda could bounce back in as quickly as 12 months in Afghanistan if we don't do what we need to do. So when I talk to sources about this, what they say to, to the argument you just laid out is, well, why Afghanistan? Why regroup there? Why shouldn't we be as worried about, you know, Central Africa and Al-Qaeda's presence there? What's your response to that? So right now, the, the, the places I'm most worried about are ISIS in Africa and Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, but longer term, I worry most about Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and, and ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Why? Because at the end of the day, the most important thing that a, that a terrorist group can have, the most important determinant of their success is safe haven, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and you have safe haven in Afghanistan that you really can't have anywhere else because you're being harbored now by the Taliban. And Afghanistan's a big place. It's tough to get to. It's tough to find partners. We just heard about that earlier in the show. So that's why I worry more about Afghanistan. So are we more at risk then without the military presence there? We are more at risk without a doubt because we haven't yet, as we heard from, from Representative Kinziger, we haven't yet put together a strategy for how we're gonna do the two things. So one, right, is to collect that intelligence that I talked about. The intelligence community's gotta figure that out. Then the Department of Defense has to figure out this over the horizon capability, right? So when the intelligence community says, Mr. President, they're rebuilding again. They're getting to the point where they can attack the homeland again. And the president says, take action. The military has to be able to reach in and degrade Al Qaeda, right? We haven't figured those two things out yet. And, and on that point, over the horizon, it's just a euphemistic word to, for flying in drones and planes from far away. So you had this drone strike that now the New York Times and the Washington Post is raising questions about. This was to target uh, some of the members of ISIS who killed U.S. troops and over 100 Afghans just a few weeks ago. Correct. So did we actually kill the person intended? And if we didn't, doesn't that show that over the horizon has some problems? So, so, so this wasn't over the horizon, right? This, this was done with assets in Afghanistan. Um, so we got to remember that. Assets still in Afghanistan. Yes. Um, you know, wh what happened here needs to be investigated. And I would hope that the administration, once it does the investigation, that it tells all of us publicly exactly what happened and if we made a mistake, why. Um, you know, President Obama was very strong on being open 
about making mistakes with drone strikes. And I think this administration needs to do the same. And that's a question for the Pentagon or that's a question for the CIA? It's a question for the White House. Um, the Secretary of State will sit for questions tomorrow. For the very first time, the administration is going to have to explain this chaotic withdrawal. Um, you hear about the Taliban effect, that jihadis looked at this, looked at American troops exiting and said, it's possible that they are inspired by this. How much should we be concerned uh, about that now? I think that the Taliban winning the war in Afghanistan and then the way our exit happened has absolutely inspired jihadists all over the world. Um, the Taliban is saying, we just didn't defeat the United States. We defeated NATO. We defeated the world's greatest military power ever. So there's a celebration going on. We defeated the Soviet Union, then it fell. Now we've defeated NATO, right? Maybe they can fall too. I think not only will jihadists be inspired but a lot of them are gonna to come to Afghanistan to be part of the celebration, to be, hard, to be part of Jihadist Central. So after 9-11, they all scattered from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I think we're gonna see a flow back in, and that's one of the things that makes Afghanistan more dangerous than other spots on the planet. We will keep an eye on it. Yes. Mike Morrell, thank you for your analysis. We wanna turn back to our coverage of the COVID pandemic. Several school districts in Florida are in an ongoing battle with the governor over that state's ban on mask mandates. The federal government is now involved with the Department of Education investigating whether it violates the civil rights of children with disabilities. We wanna go now to the superintendent of the Miami-Dade County School District, Alberto Carvalho. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. So a Tallahassee judge says the governor is well within his legal rights, but do you believe that this ban on mask mandates actually does violate the, the rights of children with disabilities as the federal government is investigating? I certainly do, and I believe that uh, the recent actions taken in Tallahassee are contrary to the expert advice of public health and medical entities that declare that uh, mass mandates are protective measures that serve a compelling public interest. Look, I'm the superintendent of a district that has lost 13 employees since August 16th. Yes, all of them were unvaccinated. Uh, we're still in a community where the positivity rate is at 8%, where the number of cases per 100,000 residents is elevated at around 330, when back in June, uh, it was only about uh, 76 individuals per 100,000. So the conditions are not what they should be for us to relax the protocols. So what actually controls the spread in the classroom? Are classrooms vectors for spread of this virus? I think uh, the experts are very compelling in telling us what controls the spread. Number one, vaccination for those who are eligible, 12 and older. And I am proud of my community since 98% of uh, residents in Miami-Dade have already obtained at least one dose of the vaccine. As a school board, we've taken courageous steps in incentivizing the vaccination of employees with financial right. incentives for our employees. Uh, social distancing, mandatory masking, ionization, uh, uh, cleaning techniques uh, in the classrooms. Uh, if you put all those together, a multi-layered approach, then we can in fact contain the spread of this awful disease. So you can't require your employees to be vaccinated. Um, the in the state of Florida, there are legal restrictions in terms of uh, mandating vaccination of employees. Exactly. And then the teachers union, they're encouraging vaccination, but they aren't mandating it. Does anything change now that the president made this announcement? Uh, well, I think one thing that has changed uh, is the fact that there is a greater incentive and a greater focus on the need to vaccinate individuals in our communities. You know, the best way the best way to reduce the positivity rates to contain the spread of COVID-19 is by surrounding kids with vaccinated yeah. individuals. And uh, our incentives, uh, the deployment of mobile vaccination units and testing units to our schools, which we do around the clock, right. are having an effect. Well, I, I wanna ask you about the tragedy, as you just mentioned, of those 13 people who worked for you, right? And in a district, right which has a high positivity rate, high poverty rate. Uh, they were unvaccinated. Um, why did they refuse to get vaccinated? 
And I think that's an important question, and I think it underlies, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it underscores a, a real tragedy in our community and across the country. There are individuals in our communities, particularly ethnic minorities, uh, who as a result of uh, sad examples that are historic in nature, coupled now with misinformation and disinformation from a very small but very vocal minority, that seeks to uh, misinform and confuse. Well, that's and why I'm asking you if, uh, that's why I want to ask you if the president's mandate uh, and talking it up makes a difference because the former Surgeon General was uh, tweeting uh, Jerome Adams this week that he, he gets the intent, but many minorities, he says, still have historically founded reservations. Many people have honest right. questions. So he's saying essentially this may backfire. Uh, in those minority communities by if they don't trust the federal government, the federal government telling them to take a vaccine isn't going to help. I understand and that's why local governments that are usually trusted, school districts, teachers, educators, superintendents, school board members, community-based organizations need to step up to provide an echo yeah. uh, and a chorus of reason in our communities. Look, this should not be a political issue. This is a health concern issue. We've never debated the value of vaccination for uh, measles, mumps, yeah. polio, or hepatitis. What's different now? Yeah. The conditions, the health conditions, are not what are causing this issue. Uh, politics are. And, and sadly, yeah. here we are debating this from a political perspective rather than a health benefit perspective. And I tell you, as a superintendent, yeah. as a father, as a teacher, I am concerned for our kids. They are being used as political pawns in this political chess game, and that is reprehensible. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, and good luck with the kids in Thank your you. schools. We're gonna go, we are going to go now to Dr. James Versalovic, the uh, pediatrician-in-chief at Texas Children's Hospital. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. So 25% of new infections in this country are among children. For the people that you are taking care of. Um, how are they getting infected? What are you seeing in your hospital with these kids? Well, we're seeing record numbers here at Texas Children's throughout Texas. And of course, as the story unfolds across the country, it's not just a regional problem, but a national problem. We've seen a record 750,000 plus, more than three quarter of a million children infected since early August through early September. We're seeing that play out here locally in one of the largest cities in the United States and the largest children's hospital in the USA. The reality is that uh, we have seen record numbers of children hospitalized during this Delta surge. We have seen record numbers of cases reported by the day, by the week. We continue to be on a high plateau. And the reality is that we may be headed to another peak or to another valley if we all pull together. Earlier in the program, we spoke with a former uh, FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who was predicting that you could potentially see a vaccine by Halloween that's available for kids 5 to 11. Um, do you agree with that timeline? Do you recommend to parents that when it's available, they give it to their child? Yes, we certainly are aiming for that timeline in October of this year to have the data here uh, put together at Texas Children's as we continue to work with children. We are well into phase two, three, working with leading children's hospitals across the country and uh, partners such as Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, that is our goal, October. Uh, we are doing everything we can now to move these trials ahead and they're moving ahead well. Uh, children are getting a different dosage, but it's safe and effective. Uh, thus far, we are on track and uh, I certainly would agree with Dr. Gottlieb that uh, we are doing all we can to get vaccines to children in the fall. In the meantime, use masking and other measures to keep our children safe and reassure parents that help is on the way in the form of vaccines for children mm -hmm. under 12. For parents, what do they need to look for in their children? Are you seeing these infections develop in the form of some of these syndromes like Miss C? Is this a respiratory infection of COVID? Who's ending up sick in your hospitals right now, and how sick are they? Well, in addition to prevention, Margaret, we need to continue to emphasize to all parents and families the importance of timely diagnosis through testing. Once a child is displaying symptoms, uh, respiratory symptoms that could be consistent, 
uh, with COVID, a COVID pneumonia, fever, uh, could be shortness of breath, other symptoms, uh, we need to make sure that child gets tested. That, if that child has a known exposure, getting timely testing is so pivotal. It's the only way we can make an accurate diagnosis and then triage the care appropriately, decide whether that child needs hospital-based care. We know how to treat children at this point in the pandemic. Uh, we know that the vast majority of these cases, more than 98% now are due to the Delta variant, highly contagious, but we are able to take care of these children in a hospital-based setting. Uh, we know that there are children with underlying medical conditions that are putting them at greater risk for severe COVID pneumonia, uh, such as obesity, Down syndrome, diabetes, uh, pulmonary conditions. Uh, but we do have medications to treat children. We want to keep children out of the hospital. And the reality is timely diagnosis is key. If a child needs hospital-based care, we do all we can to keep them out of the pediatric ICU. The reality is that children may need ICU-based care, and we're seeing that today. We're seeing infections uh, throughout every age group, mm -hmm. infants and very young children, school-age children, and unvaccinated teenagers are getting hit hard now. We're seeing that impact during the surge more than ever. So uh, we need to continue to remind parents too that beyond the acute infection, we could have MISC. Three to six yeah. weeks after infection, we are seeing a spike of MISC today. Doctor, good luck to you, and thank you very much for your analysis. We'll be right back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 20 years ago, the terror attacks on 9-11 illustrated some of the worst that humanity has to offer. But in reaction to those attacks, we also saw some of the best. Courage in the face of danger, unity at an intensely divisive moment. We could use some of that now. God bless America. It feels at times that was the last moment our country was united. Nearly 3,000 people died in the attacks that September day. Today, we lose 3,000 every two days to COVID. Yet appeals made to Americans' sense of civic duty to take the shot or wear a mask to protect the vulnerable are distorted as political battle cries. 20 years ago, it was the passengers aboard United Flight 93 who tried to seize control of the plane from its hijackers. They stopped it from hitting the U.S. Capitol. Seven months ago, on January 6th, it was our fellow Americans who violently attacked it in a deluded attempt to change the election. Yet lawmakers can't even agree on how to investigate. The trauma of that single September day is so embedded in America's consciousness that the term 9-11 has become shorthand for horrific devastation, the benchmark against which we measure all laws. Yet there was persistent trauma in the years that followed. The two wars, the botched intelligence, the torture, the distrust of institutions, government and journalists, surveillance violating civil liberties, constant Islamophobia even morphed into a presidential campaign platform. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Today, more Americans are worried about domestic extremism than foreign terrorism. This week, Homeland Security warned domestic extremists may target refugees, particularly Afghan Muslims, those who still see America as that beacon of freedom we have vowed to be. 20 years ago, Washington promised to move heaven and earth to prevent another attack. Today, 
We need that commitment again to fully heal ourselves, to decide what our values are and who we are in the world. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching and thank you to my CBS colleagues for doing such a great job, job with this show while I was on maternity leave. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, former Acting and Deputy CIA Director Michael Morell, Miami-Dade County Public School Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, and Texas Children's Hospital Interim Pediatrician-in-Chief James Versalovic. The executive producer of Face the Nation's Mary Hager. The broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.